Real people. Real opinions. Real Talk Radio. The multi-award winning Niall Boylan Show. I want to go to Carl first if I can. Carl McDermott. Good afternoon to you, Carl. Good afternoon, Niall. How are you? Good. Now, you are a survivor. Uh, You were born in 1971. Um, So what, what was your story? Did you find your birth mother? I traced my... I went looking for my birth mother, but they found her, but she didn't want anything to do with me. Right, okay. I never I never searched my birth father, but I found him. They, they found him, and I had a great relationship with him till he passed away three years ago, four years ago. And did your mother ever, or birth mother, ever give the authorities a reason as to why she didn't want to have a relationship or meet up with you? No, she just... Moved on, with her, had moved on with her life and that was it. Yeah. Well, as it goes, uh, she also had another child, another two children, we believe, with married men. Okay. And my father was married, which had the, the affair with him. Right, okay. Or he had the affair with her. But look, it is what it is. I, I mean, I don't dwell on it. What happened? I try and just get on with life. You can, know, I can I ask you, but I'm just curious about how you felt because obviously you did a bit of work to try and find out who she was and spend some time doing that. And and I know what that that feeling is like when you're, you're you're trying to find out something. It's like that kind of niggle in your head constantly all the time trying to figure it out. How did it feel when then she then said, "Well, I don't really want to meet you. Uh, I don't want to talk to you." Was that like a kind of rejection again? No, it wasn't really. No, no, I can't say she never wanted to see me again. I mean, we did have contact for about six months, seven months, I think. Yeah. But then my half-sister, my other sibling came over. She stayed with us, but she had a bit of a drink problem. Okay. And she stayed over, and then all hell broke loose, of course. It didn't go well. Because she's still with her mother. Her mother took her side, and I was kind of, you were the black sheep, and you were black. Right, I but get you. But I've, I've met her brother, I've met two of her sisters and I'm in contact with them I have a good relationship with them Yeah. so I mean they don't speak to her anymore because of the lies that she's told them so, so, it, and so you, met, you met your father out. you met your father as well and you got on well with him until he passed away sadly yeah. and, and when did he pass away? he passed away on the 16th of December Just uh, got... 2000 oh. uh, 19th. Okay. 2018, right. 2019. A day before my birthday, actually. <laughs> and, and did you get did you get much information from him about, you know, how you came about, apart from the fact that he just had an affair? Oh, no, I got all the information. It was him that gave me her address. He still remembered her address. Okay. From when, because he, they actually walked together. What happened was, she used to say she can't get into her room, the door is broken, and he had to go over and get into the room because one thing led to another and yeah. he threw the leg over and I was conceived and bloody blah, blah. And you were, now, the, end, you were the end result of that. And she, did she, yeah. so did he ever tell his wife? That I don't know. But he never had a problem. He said, if you want me to tell my children, I've no problem introducing you to the children and telling them who you are. Okay, but it was his wife or your stepmother, so to speak, has she, when you met him, had she already passed away or? No, she was still alive. But she passed away about a year after that. Okay. All right. And did you get to meet her? Was she. Well, no, no you I probably didn't. Her. No, you wouldn't have, no. No, I never met her. But I went down to visit him because he was in hospital for a while. 
and he was saying, like, my daughter's here, come on in and meet, meet, meet my daughter with your half-sister or whatever, you know. But I said, no, I'll leave you to it and do your own thing, you know. It was a bit awkward, but, uh, it? I, I mean, I've, I've no regrets, and yeah. I don't think he had any regrets either. Yeah. But the, the reason um, you want to talk about this, you're, you want to kind of look more into the, the, the medical rec- records aspect of this. Yeah, I mean, my father was a diabetic. Now, yeah. he told me, the only thing that runs in our family is diabetes. Now, I was, I was only diagnosed six months ago as a diabetic. Okay. You know, it's not the end of the world. But no, it's manageable. Care. Yeah, it's manageable. Yeah. But my mother's side, um, cancer runs to their, the cancer is very common in their family. And heart problems is very common in their family. I only found this out because I was speaking to her brother and he gave me all the medical information. But she wasn't willing to give me anything whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So like, I, just, her attitude was, I'm not entitled to it. I'm entitled to nothing because I have nothing to do with that family. That was her attitude. Right. That's a now, bit it, it sad, can, yeah. It, it, can be, it can be horrible, but yeah, no. I mean, if you let it For some people, you, yeah. It's, it's going to drag you down all through your life. If you, look... You deal with it and get on with life and don't let it, don't yeah. dwell on it. You'll get through life. You and know? where, where and were you born, way. by the way? Where, what home were you born in? The same one as you. St. Patrick's <laughs> home in the Navan Road. St. Patrick's on the Navan Road. Yeah, but that, I believe that was the busiest mother and baby home. So know? I believe, yeah. I, I believe it was. I think now, it was 25,000 children or something like that, too. Yeah. It's a lot of people, but um, my, both my parents who, who adopted me, and my father's passed away. But my mother doesn't, she never really spoke about it. You know, my brother used to hold it against me for being adopted. Why, why you he never. You weren't his brother, so to speak. Is yeah, that... it was always thrown back in your face, you know. You're not my brother, you don't do this, you don't do that, you know. Right. You don't belong. Now, but the irony of it is that he got married to his wife there about in 2005, I think it was, 2006. She can't have children. So he had to adopt a child. Yeah. And then he came over to me and he was like all apologetic. You know, I just want to say sorry for what happened. And I know I shouldn't have said what I said. But I knew he just didn't want his own son to go through what he put me through. And it was more of a guilty conscience than an apology. Do you, do you think being adopted, you know, particularly in the, in the way you were from mother and baby home, um, and I don't know how long you spent in the mother and baby home in St. Patrick's home on the Navan Road. But do you believe it had some sort of effect on your life in general? Do you believe that it has an underlying effect on your life? Honestly? Yeah. No. Because I can't remember back to the mother and baby home. I, see, I we, and a lot of people will say that, you know, oh, you can't remember. Like, I often say to people, when was the first memory you can think of? I remember falling down the stairs when I was about four or five, for example, or whatever it is. You you don't remember, but psychologists will say that you do actually have a memory of it, that you do. There are things that can happen. For example, you know, the bonding that a mother would have with a child, you know, at a very early age, that can be missing in someone's life. And, and I will I will be talking a little bit later on, as I said to, to Catherine, or Catherine Hallisey, a psychologist based in Cork, about that. So do you think that, like, even though you may not realise it, do you think it may have had an underlying effect on you? I don't think so. But hmm. I, I know they do say that a lot of adopted children have a chip on, the show, on their shoulder because they're adopted. An insecurity, maybe? Yeah, and they feel like they don't kind of belong in that family. Now, I've never felt like I didn't belong. 
I knew I was I was well brought I was brought up very well. I was well I was fed and I was clothed and I was educated, which is grand. But I there is something at the back of your head saying, you know, this isn't really my family, you know, you there's always that that desire mm. to meet your real parents, of course your, your is, yeah. birth parents. Yeah. You know. And I, I mean that's only natural. And if you didn't have that then there's more than an underlying condition, which I think. You know, I think so. But, but, but listen, Carl, I appreciate you sharing the story. It's a good point you've raised in relation to medical records. I think it should be available for everybody. Thank you very much indeed. Also, by the way, just to mention too that the Sinn Féin TD, Kathleen Funchen, said the scheme currently at the moment excludes about 40% of survivors. And uh, this was a very cynical and a cost-saving measure by the government and can't be dressed up in any other way. And she joins me on the line, Kathleen Funchen, TD for Sinn Féin. Good afternoon to your spokesperson on Children and Youth Affairs. How are you, Kathleen? I'm good, thanks, Niall. How are you? Good. Well, I, we spent two hours yesterday talking to people who had either been born in or given up children in mother and baby homes, including myself, by the way. I was born in St. Patrick's Home on the Navin Road. Now, I'm, I suppose, it, one of the lucky ones in the sense that I spent 13 months there, so I would be entitled to redress. Not that I particularly want it, but I'd be entitled to it. But we spoke to so many people yesterday who were so badly affected, and they were there less than six months, and they've now been excluded from this. Yeah, and I have to say, in fairness, now you're great for covering this topic because I've, I've heard you a number of times, and I've been on before, and and it's brilliant because there was so there's so many other things going on at the moment. Sometimes I feel this can be overlooked in mm. debates, and I think one of the crucial things is exactly I just heard the very end there of the last person, and you were saying you'd be talking to a psychologist about that early childhood kind of development and one of the things so the children's committee which i chair which is by the way is cross party so everyone government and opposition are represented we all agreed in our report that everybody should be included all survivors and part of our process was we actually had like experts in childhood trauma and you know um psychologists really kind of it was a really interesting session because they were talking about how you really can't quantify, like you could be somewhere for two years and it may have not had the same effect as someone that was only there for two months or two mm-hmm. weeks. So everyone is obviously different. And, you know, if you think about the first six months of a child's life, um, like to just think that you're totally discounting that. And really, you know, no matter what way the government wants to try and dress it up, it, they're saving money. Well, well, they, well, they're saying it's going to cost eight hundred million, maybe even actually a lot more, one point five, when you take into consideration the claims that may go in in relation to, you know, the the vaccine trials and stuff like that as well. And they said if they include everybody and every county home, we yeah. could double that figure. And they said they have a duty to protect taxpayers' money. Now, don't get me wrong; the figures that they're thrown out, even in relation to the compensation, according to a lot of people we spoke to yesterday, is not enough. Yeah. But, but not including that, then you have all of these people, 40% of them, as you mentioned, as well, uh, you know, basically excluded from it. And you said you suggest this is a cost saving measure. Do you think mm. the taxpayer minds their, their money has been spent in this manner? Because, look, we spent money in other manners in this country exactly. and, and a lot yeah. less. Yeah, no, I don't. I actually think the public are really behind this campaign and would like to see everybody included. And, you know, the state are saying there they have a, a responsibility. Well, they had a responsibility to all those women and children years ago, and they failed miserably in that. So the amount of families, you know, that I or people, let's say, that I come across that are still looking for their children, um, you know, mm. 40 years later in some cases, or, or people looking for, for mothers or, or fathers, so the devastation, and it's it's generational, like it can impact the next generation and the following generation. So the state needs to step up here. But also one of the key things in this 
is the pharmaceutical companies and the religious institutions. Now, they both have come out publicly, apologised, acknowledged their role. So they really need to be pursued far stronger than they currently are being by the state. So I think they need to be looking at their legal, how they can pursue these uh, institutions legally and, and look at their, them paying their fair share as well because they were just as responsible. And the fact that they publicly apologised, I mean, they're not trying to say that they, they weren't involved. So I think this, they, we need to be see that part getting a lot stronger because when we raise that issue, we're constantly told, oh yes, there's a negotiation or they might have sent them a letter or they might have, you know, met with them once or twice. It's nearly like they're kind of saying, oh please, would you contribute something? Whereas they should be saying, hang on a second, you are actually responsible here and you need to be... Well, well, they, well, they, well they used 43,000 children yeah. uh, for their vaccine trials um, yeah. and, you know, I don't, we don't know what money exchanged or changed hands in relation to that. Uh, at the time, it would have been Welcome or GlaxoKline, as it's now better known as well, would have uh, used... So, uh, of course, I think, like everybody would suggest, that both them and the religious orders and, of course, the state. Uh, I mean, it's yeah. collective, really, isn't it, when it comes yeah, to responsibility? It's the three, three organisations, really. Um, but, you know... Ultimately, I suppose that the book does stop with the state as well in terms of they allowed the the institutions. I mean, they knew, for example, with the you know the, like with the laundries. I mean, they knew somebody was doing all of the work. Like you know, mm-hmm. the fact that people try and say, "Oh gosh, we didn't know," or you know, isn't this terrible? And I think as well for for people who have survived, either if they were a woman sent to one of the institutions, or you know, if they were born and maybe had difficulty finding family, or mm-hmm. like, and those relationships didn't always. You know, it was difficult for people in terms sometimes when they did meet family and, you know, like, so each situation is so different. And that's why I think, you know, sometimes they'll turn around and they'll say, well, it's hard to put a price on this. And of course it is. But you don't start by excluding nearly half of the people. That's certainly and what, do you, what do you say to people, who, I, not that I would agree with the argument, but there is an argument there by people that we can't keep play, paying for the sins of the past because we'll bankrupt the country. I mean, in say, for example, in 30 years' time, will we have people putting in claims if they were put into direct provision, for example, which we all yeah. agree wouldn't, is not an ideal situation. You know, in yeah. another 50 years' time, will people be you know, suing the state because they had to go to school because people don't go to school anymore because we put a chip inside their heads now? In other words, well, we, we, you know, the way we yeah, change or evolve as yeah. a society. People are saying we shouldn't have to keep paying compensation yeah. for the sins of the past. I think this was a very different situation, though. I think nearly everything else, yes, there, there could be always possibilities and always what-ifs, but this was a situation where, in so many instances, women were forced into these institutions. And then, particularly... Um, you know, around the forced adoption where people, I mean, even the report, the commission report, as bad and all as it was, even mm-hmm. acknowledged a few stories where people thought they were signing for a social welfare payment and they actually were signing away the rights to their baby and they didn't even understand that. So I think it's very, very different. Like, this was really, um, you know, coercion by the state, really, to be honest. So I, well, I think, And coercion you know, by the church, too, because, it, yeah, because we spoke to well, mothers yesterday who felt... Yeah. One woman who said she couldn't leave the home with her baby because she was told that she would be shamed. She was yeah. told she was worthless, useless, and that her parents wouldn't let her back into the house in, in part of rural Ireland where she lived uh, with a baby because everybody yeah. would be talking about them. And that, that kind of mindset was created by the church at the time. Oh, definitely was. And they, they kind of, they really put serious pressure uh, um, on people if there was going to be even a, sl- a small possibility that they were they were trying to leave with their baby. I mean, mm-hmm. so many women, first of all, the babies were literally just taken and they didn't know where they were taken. Like, I remember dealing with one woman who, she was only 15, and she told me a story about how 
they didn't actually understand like what pregnancy was. They didn't understand what was happening to them. And then there was two separate uh, places, so like girls and women who came in who were pregnant were, were put in one part. And the next thing, they used to hear like, you know, crying and screaming. And obviously that was maybe when people were in labour. And then they never saw those girls again because they were put somewhere else. And they said they actually thought they were being killed. Like that's the kind of I know. I know. My own, my own bird mother told me. My own yeah. bird mother told me stories of when she was there that there were women, and before there, she used to be sent down to Fibsworth Church to clean the church in the mornings, and because she was there for a little while after I was born, and there was mothers there that used to write their names and addresses and stick it inside the baby's nappy in case the baby was taken while they were gone. Which, yeah. when you think about how sad that must have been, you well, know, that they literally no choice. Exactly, and also that what that must do to you, you know, like. I have two boys myself and just thinking that you, you, you mightn't, you might come home one day and they mightn't be there. Like, mm. it's it's nearly impossible to, 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 I often think like, I don't know how some of the women kept going yeah. in those situations, particularly, and they're, and they're still looking for for families and, and for kids. So I think that there there is a different responsibility with the state with this than there might be in other schemes in the future. I really do think, uh, and I, I honestly can't, imagine anybody like I certainly haven't haven't come across anybody that would say oh look you know we just have to get on with it now and that the state is not responsible I think the public are really really behind this campaign and mm-hmm. and there is still uh, you know I suppose make this last appeal there is still an opportunity because there's one phase left to vote on um, it's looking like it'll come up the week of the 21st of February um, so there is a possibility still for the government to change now unfortunately I don't know if I'm just here in this institution too long but I feel possibly you know they're going to try and push ahead with this but I would appeal to anyone that's out there listening or to any government reps they have an opportunity to change this and also if you, if you can lobby your, your government GDs in particular and ask them to ensure that they include everybody we still do have have uh, kind of one chance left on it as such. I know, I know yourself and Holly Cairns and, and I know Labour TD Sean Sherlock as well have been quite outspoken in relation to this and and also in relation to finally I mean look we've waited so long for this piece of legislation now and this redress and yeah. also the legislation for track and trace which I could spend a day talking about which hasn't really worked out as well as they planned because the, the waiting lists are so long they planned to get it done for six weeks for everybody we're now up to six months and people are still not getting results so that's unfortunate that they don't have enough staff but in relation to this piece of legislation, this piece of redress, people have waited years and, and the individuals who are entitled to this redress are starting to die because of the age of people, just because yeah. of their age. I mean, how long more will people have to wait? And that was the question that was coming in over and over again yesterday by people by text and WhatsApp. When are they going to pay it? Because they've been kicked down yeah. the road so many times. Yeah, it has. I would think myself, like I obviously have huge difficulties with the fact they are excluding you know, 40% of people, but I do think the legislation will be probably up and running, as in like the payment should be ready for around the summertime because it will probably be passed that week, um, starting the 21st of February, probably the 22nd or 23rd, and then they had said it would be three months after that, so I do think it will be summer. Um, so we're hopeful we get it. We're hopeful that people will get it before the government go on holidays. Is, is that what we're hopeful I would, of? I would, I would say that's that, that's kind of the rough time frame for for it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, as I said, it's still. Uh, and I know because I know there's so many people waiting. And as I said, there's so many people, unfortunately, have passed away even even since kind of this time last year as such. But um, their their plan they had said all along it would be three months after they get the legislation passed and. and uh, obviously, we'd like to see the legislation change, but I, 
regard, even if they change it, it should be passed that same weekend. Well, hopefully, hopefully the legislation covers everything because unlike the track and trace, and I'll give you one story just to take which uh, Catherine yeah. saying, something I haven't mentioned on the air. My brother was also adopted from St. Patrick's Home on Avon Road. Sadly, he passed away in a tragic accident when he was 24 years of age. Um, he would be now in his 50s. Um, and I decided there about six weeks ago that it wouldn't it be nice if his mother could be out there somewhere looking for him, wondering why he's yeah. never contacted her. So I contacted Tusla. Uh, under the track and tracing legislation to see if I could find out who his mother was to maybe contact her and say, listen, this is where he's buried. Here's some nice photographs of me. Had a good life, unfortunately, just met with an accident. And I was told by track and trace, um, well, first thing they asked me, do you have consent? I said, he's passed away. And I said, yeah. well, we need consent from his parents. And I said, they've both passed away, his adoptive parents. Yeah. And I said, there's just me, his brother. And they said, unfortunately, we can't do it for you. So that's it. Gosh, that's, yeah, that doesn't seem So under the, she said, under the legislation, which is uh, section three, uh, no, it's paragraph three, section 20, um, I don't qualify as a sibling. So you take, take yeah. that, that's why I'm saying I hope we get this legislation right. No, you're right, right and, and that just goes to show you that there needs to be so many changes made with that one, particularly around the waiting times, but something like that, mm-hmm. it seems like such a ridiculous it would, wouldn't it be nice it for, it'd be nice for, because I, I, I envisage be, this I, I, mother I, I, out there somewhere yeah, wondering where he they is. They are wondering and, and looking because I know so many women who, you know, their kids would be into their 40s, coming up on 50 now, they still have never found yeah found them. And it's just devastating, you know. Yeah, and she, I, I always think to myself, if she's out there, if she's still alive, she could be 70 or 80 years of age now. If she's still alive, is she thinking, oh God, why has he never contacted me? Or why has he I never know. tried to find me? yeah. And unfortunately, he will never because unfortunately he passed away. But I, I just thought it was interesting that they, they wouldn't accept me as a sibling, even though they're the only ones they can accept is a father or a mother, adoptive parent or the person themselves. That's it. Which is completely wrong. Yeah. Not a sibling. Yeah. Well, listen, Kathleen, it's been lovely talking to you. Keep up the good work, by the way, Kathleen, so in, much, in relation Miles. to this. Thank you very much indeed. Thank and I you. appreciate you coming on the air. All right. For those who are texting in yesterday in relation to that, as Kathleen said, that redress should be available all things going well before the summer and um, before the government head off on their holly bags for the summer. So I know it's not enough for some people and for those excluded, I hope you get included because as Kathleen said, there's still one more phase to go in part of the legislation. Anyway, after the break, I will be talking about the idea that the government have said that, and we can venture into other aspects of life in relation to this. When I talked to Catherine, Catherine Hallisey, who is a psychologist based in Cork, um, because the government did say in relation to mother baby homes, that not being with your parent at a very young age, under six months, shouldn't really have a traumatic effect on your life. But I have a funny feeling that Catherine Hallisey, who's an expert in that field, will completely disagree. Loads of people still texting in relation to the government's opinion on how, at a very early age, under six months, if you don't spend time with your mother or father or your parents or whatever it is, or you don't have that bond... According to the government, under six months, it doesn't have much effect on your life. So they say with their evidence, I completely disagree with that. And I have a text here that says, I definitely, at the age of 49, feel so insecure. I don't deal with rejection in life. I was hospitalised in 2010. At the time, the consultant asked me to source my medical history, as I was quite ill at the time. I contacted the HSE, met with them and explained my story. They asked me to write a letter to my birth mother, which I did, and the forms are filled out. I told her how much I loved her, no blame whatsoever. And uh, would she like to meet or uh, meet me? It would be great. But I'm, if not, afraid to let her new family know, etc., etc. That will be fine too. But I also asked her to please give me my medical history too, or at least 
Weeks later, the HSE social workers called me back and they said, unfortunately, they couldn't find her. And to be fair, they were very sympathetic when I cried. Niall, I know in my heart and soul they weren't telling the truth. I could just tell there was either a cover-up or my birth mother just didn't want to know me. Then I was made a sign of form promising I would never try and source any information ever again about my birth mother. I wouldn't have signed that. I parked it there and then uh, forever finding her again. I've been heartbroken since. Listening to your show yesterday, as I do every day and I'm now wondering should I try again absolutely go ahead and try again thank you for highlighting this new, uh, this subject Niall and your team uh, it gives me hope from an anonymous listener and somebody else texts in say, more or less the same thing wondering if my insecurity has anything to do with being born in a mother and baby home well to give me some information on that and other information in relation to bonding and those early formative years of your life is Catherine Hallisey who's a psychologist based in Cork good afternoon to you Catherine Good afternoon, Niall. Thanks for having me on to discuss this incredibly important topic. Okay, there's a lot I want to talk to you about, but let's talk about first what the government said. And we heard an RTE on Upfront on Monday night when uh, a senator suggested that the government had evidence that under the age of six months, they more or less said it, was, it wouldn't really have much of an effect on you. So if a child is left in a cot on its own with, you know, 20 other babies in cots and a nun walking through every now and again just to feed them all with no mother around for six months, does that have a traumatic effect on a child's life? Well, I haven't had a chance to review the data that um, that, that statement was based on, but it's contrary to every single piece of research I have come across that shows that the early months are incredibly important. Look, common sense would tell us this, but also the research shows us this, that children develop their pattern of how to be in relationship through their experience, their early life experience of how their needs were seen and recognized and how they were supported, how they were soothed. And that then leads to this pattern that can play out right throughout life, just like those textures shared. I would be in a similar situation. I spent 13 months in St. Patrick's home on the Navan Road when I was born. And let's use me, I suppose, as a personal guinea pig in this uh, conversation to some degree. So I believe at this point in my life, I still suffer from massive insecurity. I'm paranoid. Uh, relationships are extremely important to me. I value marriage, for example, and I'm really very, very, very strong when it comes to relationships. And I am, I suppose, you know, I'm very, with my wife, I'm extremely close if you know what I mean, we mm. we hold hands all the time. We do. I'm a very close person, and I, you know, people used to refer to that years ago as being a huggy type person. Well, that's mm. the type of person I would be. So, and and I think insecurity makes me feel like that sometimes too. Is that something that would come from the point, the fact that I didn't have that bonding at an early age? You know, the we originally thought that your attachment pattern was laid down and that was it, it was fixed right throughout life. But what you have just described is this type of earned security. So when you, you really value relationships, you value that closeness, you value that connection. So it's not that you ever um, let go of what happened to you in your early childhood, but you can develop strategies to support yourself. And it sounds like that you've done that in a really healthy way. And yet at times of stress, you mentioned that that insecurity can get triggered. Mm -hmm. So this is what I see a lot in my work. And I work with parents um, when when they become parents themselves, their own attachment history can get triggered. Their own early life experiences, those patterns are laid down. And at times of stress, they get activated. And when we become parents, that's, that's a wonderful time, but it's also a very stressful time. 
So these patterns Mm -hmm. can get activated, just like you say. So, of course, these early months are incredibly important. Like, I would love to know, and I will need to look to see, is there further research that shows that these months aren't important because it's contrary to every single (laughs) thing I've read. Well, the government were asked to produce this evidence and research on numerous occasions by many TDs, uh, including Kathleen Function, who we just spoke to a few minutes ago on the air, and also Holly Cairns, TD Holly Cairns, and they haven't produced it as of yet. So I don't think they're going to produce it. I think they're basing it off the payments that were made for previous redress schemes, and that obviously went okay for them. So I I don't believe there is actually evidence from anybody. I think that's just a a term that they're using. So the effect this has had on a lot of people, you know, the difference between five months and seven months is, you know, 16,000 euro in redress. That's outrageous, really, isn't it? When you think about it, the effect that it would have had on a child, that those two months make absolutely zero difference. You know, it's, I suppose it's incredibly distressing to hear that people are being put through further trauma, having to justify the level of their trauma. Mm-hmm. You know, how can you put these values on the trauma? And... You know, I suppose as a psychologist, I find it quite upsetting, actually, to hear that, that this is preposterous to, to talk like this. We know that these months are incredibly important. We know that these early experiences are with you right throughout life. Just because a child doesn't remember it, it's, it's within them. It's in their body. It's in their ways of interacting. And, and that stays right throughout life and moves into the next generation in terms of how you parent. And does all childhood trauma, leaving aside mother and baby home, you know, something that may happen, maybe, for example, a marriage breakup, when a child is, say, two or three years of age, you know, where the father has to leave the house or whatever, mm-hmm. or there's a divorce happening. Do those type of things, do they have a, a massive effect on a child? Or does it, again, depend on the child? You know, I think it depends on a lot of things. Like, I I am very hopeful. You know, even with attachment, I think there's huge hope because we can have this earned security later in life. And similarly with traumas, when it's single incident trauma, like a car accident, that that is different to an ongoing developmental trauma where a child is experiencing harm at the hands of a caregiver. That is different in terms of the impact. But there were a lot of personal factors as well. But the research on separation and divorce is clear, actually, that it isn't the um, separation or divorce that causes the harm. It's the lack of subsequent contact. It's continuing conflict. These are actually the things that cause harm to children, not the separation itself. Because the separation itself, of course, is going to be very difficult. But in terms of it causing long-term harm, it's more around high conflict and lack of contact. And that, and that in turn, I imagine, affects or has an impact on our future relationships and our ability to trust people. Of course, yes, that's exactly it. And, and what you just said there, your ability to trust, that's actually key here. When your early life experience is set a pattern of your trust in relationship. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we can all trust when things are good. But when things are tough, that's when this insecurity and this inability to trust in relationship, that's when this really comes to the fore. So it isn't, it isn't as much, so, the, so these, you know, what you're talking about, other traumas, it's not as much what happened, it's how you were able to make sense of it and how you were supported. So even for children who were in homes and not getting the adult care 
loose adequate emotional care and the emotional responsiveness just couldn't be there. So it's not that it's not just that, it's what happens happens subsequently. So how I, I suppose the young I'm, th- I'm thinking about it like when I think about, say, these homes, I'm coming back to them again. You know, when I had children, for example, you know, when the babies cried when they were whatever months old it was, you would immediately go to their aid. You would pick them up and you would give them a hug and reassure them everything was OK and they would go back yeah. to sleep again. But in these homes, of course, you would have had, as I said, 20, 30 kids and cots and they're probably crying most of the time. Uh, and then eventually they would probably stop crying because they knew yeah. nothing would happen if they cried. They didn't get that reassurance. And I yeah. suppose that that then, that set, is that like a foundation in our mind? Because I don't know how the brain works. You know it better than I, Catherine. Is yeah. that like a foundation in your brain and sets you up for life in the way that you would get, not get attention, that's probably the wrong word, but to get the attention of the person you love and um, that you're not getting it at that young age? Yeah, you know, we're a connection-seeking species. We are designed, like our evolutionary patterns are set up that babies will seek connection with their primary carer. That's how they stay alive. That's how they get all of their needs met, both physical and emotional. So if the child is doing what we would call a serve, you know, a cry is a serve, and then you want the caregiver to return. So you're talking about when you became a parent, you returned immediately. You gave the care and attention that was needed. So in a situation where that's not possible, a child then develops a model of my needs don't get met. When I'm in distress, I can't trust that someone will come. Sometimes someone will come, but I can't trust that it's always going to happen. It's very sad, isn't it, when you think about it like that? Because most people do get that need met. But unfortunately, some don't. And not just mother and baby homes, but some children just have bad parents, too, who maybe neglect them, too. In Very rela- much so. Yeah. In relation to, to, I suppose, over the last two years, it just finally, uh, I suppose, when we talk about children, um, the lockdowns and the impact mm. of the lockdowns that has had on children. Thankfully, we're not in that situation and we don't seem to be going down the route of wanting to close schools again or, mm. you know, put masks on children's faces again or all those kind of different things that we, we did to children. And we did to ourselves during those lockdowns and one wonders and there's a whole inquiry as to whether it was worth it or not. But do you believe it had an impact on children? I think it's had an impact on all of us. Mm. I think we have this collective trauma, our trust again, you know, it's this word trust, our trust in our way of life, our trust in our way of interacting. That was shaken. Mm. Now, again, because I'm a psychologist, I'm very hopeful. I believe in, in our capacity to overcome this. But it is really important that we acknowledge this. For example, even when I collect my children from school, the parents whose children um, started school during COVID at collection time all still stand six feet apart. And when I'm collecting my older children, and we would have been at the gate prior to COVID, we're all jammed together. I get it's, you, yeah. It's really it's a kind of learned behaviour, yes. Yeah, so yeah. it's, it's those, so the pattern of interacting with my children when I'm collecting the senior infants' children is different to the pattern. And this is just one tiny example. Mm-hmm. There are a million examples. This is a tiny one. There are many big examples. And it really has changed. And yet, I also know we have the capacity to overcome. And it's really important, anyone who's listening now, to know that there's a hopeful message. We can overcome a lot, even with really adverse early experiences, less than optimal experiences. It is possible to overcome them. It just makes things harder, but you can overcome them. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And we should all go back to shaking hands again. I've noticed I've noticed I over the last year and a half, people are reluctant to shake hands anymore. And I'm going, well, there was nothing wrong with it before COVID. Why can't we just go back to doing it again? Because I'm a handshaker. I well, mean, I'm I'm a hugger. Oh, so. I yeah. <laughs> You I'm, know, a, I'm a hugger too, but it has to be appropriate. <laughs> and you're trying to gauge, you know, this is the thing, I suppose, the trust and trying to gauge other people's level of comfort as well. Yeah. And I think this is something that's evolving. We're, we're just learning more about gauging other people's level, level of comfort with things too. Absolutely. Well, listen, thank you very much. And more importantly, thank you in relation to what we talked about earlier in the conversation about the mother and baby homes. I think it's very important. And hopefully before it goes through the final phases of legislation, they will change your that. Smartphone app store, Ireland's classic hits radio. Everybody would be All right, let me go to Katrina. Katrina, hi, how are you? You're telling us. I'm great, how, how are you today? Good. Good. Now, you're Natural, thank you very much in He's now 75 years of age, but he was born in Tume yeah. uh, in the mother and baby home. And what is it you want to talk about? Well, being honest, I was I got a lot of uh, questions answered there by Catherine that was on earlier. Oh, okay. About uh, yeah, but at the same time, I was feeling they left people so long waiting for a redress. Like he's seventy five years of age. Yeah, they have a group themselves in, in Tume, and he often told me himself how many people out of that group are passing away. Yeah, of course. Like, it's very, it's very, very unfair on them. They were, like my my brother, my foster brother was there. Was there till he was six years of age. Yeah, and would say he went through hell. And you know, I I, I almost believe that was the hope of the government. You know, going back ten years ago or fifteen years ago when this all started first was let's delay this as long as possible because the longer we delay it, the more of them will be dead and we won't have to pay out as much. Yes, yes, and that's the way it's looking because it's very, very unfair on them. Each year now. He'd come to me and he'd say, right, oh, we're supposed to get it now by Christmas. We're supposed to get it by Christmas. This has gone on for the last three years. I'm very and confident uh, in what Kathleen Funchen said from uh, Sinn Féin earlier on on the show that it will be paid out by summer this year. Yeah, he'd be very grateful with that. Mm-hmm. But he, is a, he has had a severe heart operation, we'll say, and he's, you know... <sighs> He has to be careful in what he does and everything else, and it has to be monitored yeah. and everything else, as you can imagine. So well, you, nobody you, well, you were saying, you were saying what Katrina was saying, or not Katrina, sorry, Catherine, yeah, Catherine. Was, saying, was saying earlier on there about insecurities and all that kind of stuff. Do you think that yeah. it had an effect on his life? Absolutely. And mm. he, he is a bachelor. Yeah. He never married. So, so in other words, he, he couldn't sustain a relationship. Correct. Yeah. And we'll say what I didn't realise until all this came up was there happened to be about four or five people in the local area. Mm-hmm. And if you look at them all, they're all bachelors. Right, that that makes a lot of sense, I suppose, in relation to what, yeah. what Catherine was saying, that they would find a difficulty in relationships, you know, in Absolutely. trusting people. And Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I was shocked to see that they were all bachelors. Mm. And I was adopted myself from uh, Ras Gray. Okay. And in my situation, I've gone through two about five times and... They cannot find my mother. Uh, the same that... Uh, and when you say they can't find her, they have no record of who your mother is. Yeah, they have the record and they're saying that the founder and everything and they wrote to her, but she's not responding back. Oh. And, you know, there's nothing and do you, more... And, and do you know her name? Do you, well, don't tell it on the air, obviously. No, but, of course, of but, course. But, yeah. but do, you, do you know her first and second name? I do, yes. And but they're saying she's in England somewhere, but is not replying. Well, nowadays, well, I don't know where. Well, well, you know, Katrina, sit down one afternoon <laughs> and nowadays with social media and all those kind of things, mm. 
it's a lot easier now than it would have been when I went through all that trouble go back 30 years ago. You know, mm. it is so much easier now with social media and everything being online, the register of voters is online in the UK, all that kind of stuff. It would be easier, you'll, you'll narrow it down, depending on the type of name it is. If it's an unusual second name, and don't tell me it, but if it's an mm. unusual second name, well then you're more likely to find it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes. I do understand. Yeah, yes. I'd give it a yes. shot yourself even, you know. Now, yeah. obviously, yes. when you do find out where they are, you know, be cautious how you approach that, approach that situation too, you know. Yeah, yeah. That's, so you can't just go up and knock on the door. No, no. how are you doing? <laughs> I'm Katrina, I'm your daughter. <laughs> yeah, that, it doesn't, yeah. no, yeah. you've you got to be a little bit more diplomatic than that. I know, it, you know, I know, yeah. I know, yes. yes but listen, yes. Katrina, it's been nice talking to you and, and I hope your brother stays well and I hope he gets his money before Christmas. Real people, real opinions, real talk radio. The multi-award winning Niall Boylan Show.